You want to grab your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you remember before we took a little break for Christmas, we were working our way through 2 Corinthians, so we're not too far along. So if you're just jumping in with us today, you didn't miss that much apparently. Uh, We're going to start hitting fast forward because we need to finish in the next month or so, uh, Because uh, although that's impossible, next couple of months because we want to come into Easter uh, thinking about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so we're going to be in 2 Corinthians. If you weren't here last week, uh, you missed it. Now, I know we're always trying to save people's feelings and uh, say, oh, you didn't, you know, not a big deal. But it was a big deal uh, that you weren't here because last week we just blew up in this place. It was amazing. Uh, We talked about Ephesians chapter 3, that God is able to do above and beyond. Uh, That that's what he does. That's who he is. And we took away last week three promises that God is able to do above and beyond. And that you are able to do above and beyond because of the Spirit of God inside of you in Christ. And when He does above and beyond, through you, He gets glory. Now those are some bedrock promises. That's some foundational truth. That He is able, you are able, and He's going to get the glory. So the question we asked last week, coming out of those three promises, is now what are we going to do? If we have those three promises in our pocket, those are true. He can and is able to do above and beyond. We are able to do above and beyond. And he's going to get the glory. What are we going to attempt this year in his name? Not in our name, not because we don't get the glory. He gets the glory. Not for us, not for our comfort, not for our ease. That's not what we're doing. But what are we going to do in 2013 for him? And so we declared last week, this is why you missed it, apologize to you for not being here, 2013 is the year for getting stuff done. That's Missouri coming out in me, it's not sophisticated, it's not grammatically correct, but this is the year for getting things done. All the things that you have imagined doing for Jesus, all the things that you've wanted to do, every conversation that you've wanted ever to have, everything that you've uh, thought about, man, it would be so neat if God used me to do this one day, this is the year for starting that stuff. Not the year for talking, not the year for thinking, this is the year for doing. Because we're going to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. We're going to be doers of the word and not just dreamers only. And so now we're in 2 Corinthians. And it follows up perfectly to what we talked about last week. Because the question will be, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to attempt. I've, I've, I've invited some kingdom imagination into my life because he is able and I am able through him. And he's going to get the glory. So I'm dreaming up this thing. This is what I want to do. But how do I do it? What is the path? What we're going to see from the scripture today is that the path is not a path of strength. It's not really even a path of power. But it's going to be a path of weakness that gets us to all that God has wanted to do in and through us. So you have one finger in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want you to then go and find Acts chapter 28. 2 Corinthians 4 and Acts 28. 
verse 1. It says, safely ashore. Now, they're safely ashore because the Apostle Paul was just on a boat that was drowned in a storm. He was on a prison ship. If you remember the story from the last half of Acts, the Apostle Paul goes to Jerusalem. He knows something is going to happen there to him, uh, that his ministry is kind of going to come to a climax there. And uh, the Jewish leaders, they were enraged by Paul because he used to be one of them, but now he preaches Jesus and they don't like Jesus. And they certainly don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah resurrected from the dead. And so they are going to hurt Paul and murder Paul. And so the Roman uh, troops there put Paul into prison to protect him. And so for a long time, Paul is kind of under lock and key of the Roman guard in different places near and outside of Israel. And at some point, he appeals to Caesar. That was his right as a Roman citizen. He appeals to Caesar. He wants his case heard before the highest courts in the Roman Empire. And so on a prison ship with real prisoners, Paul is headed to Rome. There's a massive storm. The ship goes down. Now, safely ashore. When we learned that the island was called Malta... The local people showed us extraordinary kindness, for they lit a fire and took us all in, since rain was falling and it was cold. As Paul gathered a bundle of brushwood and put it on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself to his hand. When the local people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, This man is probably a murderer, and though he has escaped the sea, justice does not allow him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. So the Apostle Paul, on this prison ship, it goes down. He's in the middle of the sea. They finally make it to shore, an island called Malta. The people of the island are showing incredible kindness because these are prisoners. And somehow they knew that these were prisoners that had escaped drowning. And so they're building a fire, and Paul is, um, I guess, a man, because what do men do when there's fire? They kick it around, and they push it around, and they throw stuff in. Well, that's what Paul's doing. Maybe he was actually helping, but he probably was a man. Man, am I right? Right? Stuff lights up, and you just got to just gotta do stuff with it. You just got, I don't, it, I don't think you grow out of it. You just got to mess with it. And so Paul is messing with the fire, and uh, a snake comes out because of the heat and bites him on the hand. Now, the people of Malta, they're like, well, he got what he deserved. He was probably a murderer. He was on this prison ship. He probably should have drowned. That would have been justice because he's probably a murderer. But he didn't. He escaped the sea. And now the snake has bitten him. It's a poisonous snake. And he's going to die. He's going to get justice. The reason I want to show you that doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about. But I want you to see the mindset of these people in the first century. That when bad things happen, you probably deserved it. I mean, that's not too much different than... Sometimes the mindset that comes into our thinking. If bad things keep happening to you over and over and over again, at some point we're going to look at you. We're going to stop looking at your circumstance and situation, and we're going to start looking at you. And it means something is wrong. In the first century, what they were thinking, the Corinthians, who Paul is writing this letter to, they were looking at the Apostle Paul... And they were seeing all this bad stuff that was happening to Paul. He's in prison. He's being beaten. He's being stoned. uh, He's being persecuted. They're looking at all this bad stuff that are happening. And they're asking the question, and it's kind of a fair question, if all this bad stuff keeps happening to you, is God really with you? Because kind of in our thinking, if, if God is with you, then maybe a bunch of good stuff happens to you. If God is with you, Everything that was hard is now easy. If God is with you, then 
all the problems that everybody else has. Well, you don't have those if God is with you. That's what the Corinthians are thinking. And so now they're calling the Apostle Paul's ministry into question because of this long list of suffering that he travels around with. And so 2 Corinthians is a letter to this church to, to defend his ministry. And what we're going to see is he's, he's going to say, listen, my weakness, all that stuff about me that you think means that God is not using me, that God is not with, with me, what he's going to show them is that is the path of influence. Weakness is not something that in the kingdom of God you detour around. If you want influence, the road is weakness. And if we want 2013 to be the year that we finally start doing the things that we have talked about, it won't be by going around weakness. It will be by embracing it. Just like the Apostle Paul. So 2 Corinthians, turn back there, chapter 4. Verse 7. It says, Now we have this treasure in clay jars, so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are pressured in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who live are always given over to death because of Jesus, so that Jesus' life may also be revealed in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith in accordance with what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak knowing that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you. For all this is because of you, so that grace extended through more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to God's glory. Therefore we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Look back at verse 7. He starts out by saying, now we have this treasure in clay jars. What is the treasure? Well, you can discern it from the few verses that come before verse 7. But if we were going to summarize what Paul thinks of as the treasure within us, it's the gospel of Jesus. It's the good news of Jesus. And that is that the Son of God has come to earth, has lived a righteous life, a holy life, a sinless life. He laid that life down on the cross. He was raised from the dead. He appeared to many witnesses. He ascended up into heaven, and one day he will return. See, when you believed in Jesus, when you came to that moment, when you realized you did not have eternal life and you needed eternal life, when you realized you were apart from God and you needed to be connected to God through Christ, when you gave your life to Jesus, you received a lot of things. You received eternal life. You received peace. You received redemption. You received joy. You received the Holy Spirit. But you also received a message. You also received 
a mission, the gospel of Jesus, that in the same way that you have received, you would go and tell others so they can receive. And Paul says we have this treasure, the gospel of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And we carry it around in clay jars. Now, I don't know if that's offensive to you, but it kind of should be. uh, Because he's calling you a clay jar and me. Uh, Clay jars were everywhere in the first century. They were common. Uh, You had a clay jar if you were rich. You had a clay jar if you were middle class. And you had a clay jar if you were poor. Uh, In fact... When people find clay jars in archaeology, they don't even really make a big deal about it unless there's something written on it or unless they contain something because they're just so common. You've been out in the country somewhere once upon a time and you stumbled upon what? Some kind of broken jar made of clay. They're just everywhere they were in the first century. So Paul is saying, you know, he's describing us. We're carrying this amazing treasure, but he says you're carrying it around in a clay jar. Now, if it's me... And Paul's asking me, he's like, what kind of jar should I use to describe, you know, the people of God? I'm thinking like, what about bronze? Bronze is like masculine. It feels strong, right? Or silver, that's valuable. Or platinum, hello, ladies. Some of you are wearing the platinum ring. That means your husband loved you extra or he went into a lot of debt. Us white gold people, we bow down to you and your platinum. Us platinum, it's the, it's the real deal. And so I'm thinking, if I'm going to be a carrying case, you know, if I'm just going to carry something around, if I'm going to be a glorified box, I want to be a nice one. I want to be a bronze one with some kind of massive emblem on it. I want to be a silver one. I want to be one made of pure gold. I want to be the platinum of jars. But that's not how he describes us. He describes us as clay, common, everyday jars. Why? I think God wants us to embrace our identity as a clay jar so that no one in the world gets confused about what the treasure is. Because what's in me naturally is to let all of you and everyone I live around and everyone that I move around to let them know this is valuable. And it is in, in Christ. But this is the treasure. I am the treasure. And I don't think God wants anybody to get confused about what the real treasure is. Is it Him or is it me? Well, I think even if this is your first time in church and you have very little background in church or around the things of God and the, and the things of Jesus, I think all of us would understand even just a basic quick reading of the Scripture that we are not the treasure. You know, we are not the Savior. We are the saved. We are not the Redeemer. We are the redeemed. We're not the treasure. This is not about us. We understand that in some sense. But what I try to do is I try to spiritualize my flesh. And I try to make my sin look as godly as possible. So what I'll try to do is I'll try to just blend the two things together. That, yeah, Jesus is the treasure. But I'm one of them gold coins always hanging out around the treasure. That me and Jesus, that we are special. Yeah, it's Jesus. It's like 90% Jesus, absolutely. But I'm bringing a strong 10% into the mix. Who's the treasure? Jesus is the treasure. But he's extra treasurable when I get into the scene. Let's try to blend 
those two things together that I know I can't just say I'm the treasure, but somehow he and I together, we can be the treasure. And here's how I know when I, I slip into that thinking. I start asking myself two questions consistently and constantly. How am I being received? How, how are people going to receive me? Uh, how, when I walk into a room, am I going to be welcomed? Am I going to be appreciated? Am I going to be looked up to? How am I going to be received? And the other question is real similar, but it's actually darker and more twisted. It's how am I going to be perceived? I mean, think how broken that is. That it's not enough for us to try to control how people end up receiving us. Do they welcome us? Do they like us? We are so broken that we want to control their very first thought about us. That we want to get into people's minds and control what they think about us when they think about us. How self-centered and twisted is that? And when I start doing that, which is often, start asking myself, how are people going to receive me? Not even how are they going to receive me, but how are they going to think in the privacy of their own minds about me? When I start worrying about that, I know I have slipped into somehow Jesus is the treasure, but so am I. And what Paul is saying today, no, 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 just a clay jar. You're just a clay jar. Unsophisticated people have you in their homes. You're a clay jar. The lowest of the low can afford you. You're a clay jar. And clay jars were common, and they were also weak. I mean, go to museums and find clay jars. They are never wholly intact because they are brittle, and they are easily broken. And that is what Paul wants us to embrace in this idea of being a clay jar, that we are weak. That's how he's describing his ministry as not a ministry of great power and great, uh, um, you know, that he's, he's, he's amazing at making people think things about him. I mean, I mean, in 1 Corinthians, he says when he comes to him, he didn't come with wise and persuasive words. He essentially says to the Corinthians, I'm not a good orator. I'm not a good speaker. I'm not the most eloquent. I'm just a clay jar, I'm just weak. And it's that weakness that he pushes forward to the people of Corinth. I want to show you why. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So just a few pages to your right. The Apostle Paul's he's talking about how a messenger of Satan came to him. A thorn in the flesh... We don't know what that thorn was. We don't know what that messenger was. It, it could be that he was tormented by demons when he slept. It, it could be a, a, a physical weakness. Some people think it's that Paul couldn't see very well. We know that from some of his other writings that he was, didn't have great vision. It could be some other health problem. It, uh, we don't know what it is. It could be something physical. It, be, it could be a temptation that he was given to. It could be anything. But he prays that God would take it away. He prays three times, but God never does. And this is what he says, Jesus says to him in response to not taking it away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. 
So because of Christ, I am pleased in weaknesses, in insults, in catastrophes, in persecutions, and in pressures. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul's saying, no, I want to embrace my weakness. Because look what he says. Again, just look at it. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. Paul was living under the impression that if he was just consistently boasting about his strength and not boasting about his weaknesses, that somehow the power of God, which he need, would not reside in him. If you want to accomplish things for the kingdom of Jesus, weakness is the path. But who wants weakness? I mean, I don't. Never in the history of the world has somebody described you as weak. And they went, oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. <laughs> what, actually, I was really hoping uh, that uh, you didn't think that I was strong. You actually thought I was really weak. I've been praying all week that you would think that I was weak. No, no. In, in fact, men, you're like, no, that's, I want to be swole and I want to be buff and I want to be hip and I want to shoot stuff. Like, that's what I want to do. Right? They don't make movies about weak people. Because when we think about weakness, it's always just a, it's a character trait. It's just a description of, of who we are. But what Paul is saying, what the word of the living God is saying to us today is weakness in the kingdom of Jesus is not a description of your value or worth. It's a tool in your hands to accomplish the dream that God has put in your heart. So some of us have been ignoring our weaknesses. We've been trying to pretend away our weaknesses. And while we've been doing that, we've been letting go of the very tools that we need to accomplish what it is we want to do. And so if we can change our thinking to weakness and struggle and grief and pain, it's not, it's not a description of my value as a human being. It's something that God has given me to accomplish what it is I want to do with my life. Then we start embracing weakness a little bit more. I want you to look back at verse 8. And you know that this is true inherently. You know it's true that weakness is a tool and pain is a tool because, you know, if you've talked to somebody who has the flu recently, apparently there's a flu e epidemic going around. So if you don't want to shake hands today, it's cool. Just give fist bumps. I don't think as many, many germs transfer via fist bump as handshakes. Uh, but if you're talking to somebody that you love and care about who has the flu, right, what do you say to them on the phone when you find out they're just out of it? You know, hey, what's the matter with you? Why are you so weak? You know, I mean, I am, I'm not sick. You know, I have superior genes and I've been exercising. You know, that's good for you. You should go ahead and exercise a little bit and you wouldn't get sick like me. I am perfectly healthy, a specimen of health right here. The body mass index, I invented that. You know, I've never been sick ever, like all my whole life. Is that what you say? No. What do you do when you're talking to somebody who's sick? 
you go, gosh, I remember the last time I was sick. And what you did right there is you just leveraged your weakness. I mean, being sick is not something to brag about. Hey, everybody. Totally got a ton of germs right now. <laughs> it's all sick right now. <laughs> right? No. You cover your mouth when you cough. You think that you're doing that to save other people, but you're really doing it because it's embarrassing to admit that you're sick. That's not something that we would brag about. But when somebody that you care about is sick, you leverage your pain to help them. And that's what Paul is saying. All the pain, all the suffering, all the weakness. If you want to have influence with people, you leverage that in Jesus' name. Acting like you have no weakness just cuts off your ministry and your influence before it even begins. And then he goes on in verse 8. He says, we are pressured in every way, but not crushed. That's a picture of squeezing a grape. You know how you can squeeze a grape and you can squeeze and squeeze, you can press on it, and then eventually it will burst? That's what Paul's saying. We're pressed, we're pressed down, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. I love that. I love that because sometimes I think about the Apostle Paul and I look at his life and I look at, you know, Peter's life in the, 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 the New Testament, the Gospels, and John. I look at all these people and I go, there's no way that I could ever be them. You know, I can't reach up that high. You know, all I really want to know is did Paul, if he was able, did, would, he have, would he have turned on the TV? Just would he, just one time, just would he turn on the TV or does he always like go into a closet and pray? Because I'm hoping that he turns on the TV because I'm turning on the TV a little bit every day, you know, maybe a lot at my house. So when I read about Paul, I go, there's no way I can be that guy. So I love that he says, He's perplexed. And what he's perplexed about as he's writing to the Corinthians about all these weaknesses and all the struggle and all the fight that he's had and all the persecutions and the difficulty that he's come his way. He's saying, I'm perplexed. I don't always understand. I love that because I don't always understand either. I don't know why I have to walk down this path and everybody else gets to walk down that path. And Paul's saying, I I don't get it either. I'm perplexed. But I'm not in despair. There's also some... Uh, fun wordplay that we can't see uh, because this was written originally in Greek. It, it, it's written uh, perplexed and despair. It's the way that we would say uh, something similar to I'm stressed, but I'm not stressed out. He says in verse 9, we are persecuted, but not abandoned. That's a picture of somebody being pursued by an army, persecuted. I'm being chased down. But what Paul is saying is they didn't leave me behind. Oh, I'm being chased. I'm being pursued. But I'm not left alone, struck down, but not destroyed. Verse 10, we always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Now, what does that mean? I mean, what does he mean in verse 11? For we who live are always given over to death because of Jesus so that Jesus' life may also be revealed in our mortal flesh. So death works in us. What is he talking about? What he's saying is that when Paul suffers, we're not just seeing Paul suffer. We're seeing the sufferings of Jesus. I'm able to look through the pain that Paul is experiencing to see the pain of Jesus. And Paul says, 
I carry around the death of Jesus. I want to show you how he carried her around. Turn a few pages to your right to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is one of the big questions in 2 Corinthians. That's why we're able to turn to a few different places. And it seems like they're, he's always talking about the same thing because he's, he's trying to persuade them that they should continue to listen to him. Not in spite of his weakness and not in spite of the difficulty, but because of those weaknesses and because of the difficulty that he endures. So he's going to lay out his resume for the Corinthians. Can you imagine having that much gall that you would make the Apostle Paul list out his resume? I mean, this is Paul we're talking about. And the Corinthians are so hard-hearted and hard-headed that he has to list his resume. So, I mean, what's Paul going to put? I mean, he could put some pretty amazing stuff. But look what he does put on his resume on why the Corinthians should continue to listen to him and to receive his message. Are they Hebrews? He's talking about some other teachers. So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one. And here's how he's going to describe why he is a better servant than some of these other servants that have come to the Corinthian church. With far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, near death many times. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the depths of the sea. On frequent journeys, I face dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the open country, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brothers, labor and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and lacking clothing, not to mention other things. There is daily pressure on me to take care of all the churches. I love how he finishes the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians. Because the Galatians, in their hard-heartedness and hard-headedness, are asking the same question. Should we listen to the Apostle Paul? He wraps up his letter. This is the way he, he ends it. Let no one bother me anymore, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus Christ. So when Paul wants to prove that the Corinthians should listen to him, he doesn't push forward what a great speaker he is. He doesn't push forward how much knowledge he has. He doesn't push forward how hard he worked and how he was there in the beginning. He doesn't push forward his education. He doesn't push forward his background. He says, no, here, here are the, the things that I have endured for Jesus. Here is why you call me weak. And this is why you should listen to me. Now, I mean, I read that list and I'm like, if that's weakness and that's, like, I don't want that. Hello? And I doubt you do either. Yeah, you know what I'd like today is I'd like some french fries and some imprisonments. Not just one imprisonment, but plural imprisonments. Can I have that? That's what Paul had. Uh, I would like a cheeseburger and I would also like to go without food. So, Forget the cheeseburger, because I want to go without food, and I want to be cold, and I want to go without clothing. That would be fantastic. If you took all of my outfits, jeans for you men, took all of my jeans and shirt, and I just want to be without for a while. No, who wants that? Nobody wants that. And what all of us are hoping right now is we don't ever have to know what that's like. And we're praying, and we're believing in America, 
Thank God for that. That will never happen to us. And I just want to put on the table that it might. And we were given just a little glimpse of the possibility this week. I don't know if you read about it in the news, but a friend to many in this church was invited um, to, be, uh, to give the benediction at the presidential inauguration, which is a huge honor. And pastors have been doing that uh, since the beginning of America. And uh, uh, the president and his people and, uh, you know, identified this friend because of the incredible works of justice that uh, he and his organization have done um, over the years. And so incredible honor. Well, some activist groups uh, started searching the Internet and they found a message by this pastor uh, from years and years ago, over a decade ago. And in that message, the, the pastor is talking about sex, sexual ethics. And in that message, he talks about um, it just quotes literally a scripture about what is right and what is wrong, what is sin and what is not sin. Just literally is almost quoting the scripture. Well, these activist groups got a hold of it and they said, that's not right and wrong. And how dare you say that this is sin and, and that is sin. And so they made such an uproar about it that he had to offer his resignation and now he can't pray, which is what pastors do in a public forum. Because essentially he just said what the Bible said 15 years ago. The Washington Post this week called him an unrepentant bigot. And he, he said it the way you and I would say it, which is like, hey, we all need Jesus. No matter who you are, no matter what your se sexual ethics and background is, we all need the grace and mercy of Jesus. He said it just like that. All of his good works, all of his action, all of his justice mattered little because he didn't agree with this one thing that our culture is lifting up right now. And so he was pushed out of the public square of the United States of America. So we don't need to get in this little happy bubble to think, oh, that list that Paul has, that will never happen to me. Because it might. In California, in the last couple of years, there was this couple, just a normal couple, married couple, middle-aged couple, like many of us. And in their, their home, they invited some friends over, just friends. And while they were there with their friends, they read the Bible and they prayed together. It was not a church function, it was just their friends getting together. Well, I guess their friends, and I don't know how many friends they had, I don't think it was like this raging party. Some of them parked out on the street, which people have done at your house and people have done at my house. Well, some neighbors complained, I guess, to the city. The city found out that while these friends were gathered and they were reading the Bible and praying, and they said, no, no, that's a church activity. This is a residential zone, and so you cannot have friends over anymore to read the Bible and pray because that needs to be in this zone in our city and not in this residential neighborhood. That happened in California, and it wasn't like L.A. or Santa Monica, one of those places. It was just like some normal place in California, if there are normal places in California. <laughs> in the United States of America. So, yeah, man, hopefully we and our children, we, we don't have the list that Paul has. But maybe. Maybe. Now, what I'm thinking right now is, I can't do that. I mean, if, if Paul knew the trivial things that I struggle with compared to his list, he would be so embarrassed that I'm even reading his letter to him. I, I, can't, I can't do that. But that's not even really the question this morning. The question isn't, when the moment comes, are you willing to suffer for Jesus? Because we can't answer that right now, unless you're in the moment. So take that off the table. The way that we carry the death of Jesus in our body is not by saying, oh yeah, one day if something happened, I would totally go all the way with it. The way that we carry the death of Jesus 
is that every morning we wake up and we die to ourselves. And we say to Jesus, today I'm going to want to go my way, but I'm putting to death my way and I'm saying hello to your way. It's not when the spotlight comes up and you're locked up in some chair and they got a light over your face and they're asking you about Jesus. That's not the moment that you carry the death of Jesus in your body. That's not where it starts. It starts way back on a dark Monday morning before the rest of your house is up. When you put to death and I put to death this flesh that's in us. I love a story. I think it's one of my favorite stories in the Gospels of John chapter 18. You remember it? Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, you remember he's praying in the garden and his friends have fallen asleep. They're not with him. And, and the cross is coming. And it's just all coming. Jesus is staring at the face. And so he's suffering. He's praying. He's sweating blood. He's praying and praying. And the Bible says in John chapter 18 that here comes this mob. Uh, and they got weapons. They got lanterns. They got torches. And they're coming for Jesus. And Jesus knows that they're coming for him. And so if a mob is coming for you. And they're going to take you away. And you know they're going to take you away to do bad things to you. You know where they're going to find me? They're going to find me in the furthest part of that forest that I can go. It's going to be hide and seek, and it's going to be on for a long, long time. Because if they're coming for me, they're going to have to work for it. But that's not what Jesus does. In fact, the scripture says that Jesus goes out to meet them. And Jesus asked them, who are you looking for? And they say, we're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. And the Bible says that when Jesus says, I am he, the mob with their weapons and their torches, step back and fall to the ground. Imagine the power radiating out of the Son of God in that moment, that with just his very word, he put down a mob. And I think that he did that to show them and to show us, hey, let's not make any mistake today. Nobody is taking me. Nobody takes the Son of God. I have willingly laid down my life. So listen, if this list ever comes to us, and I hope it doesn't, man, but it is coming to some of our brothers and sisters around the world right now. But if this list of Paul's, of all that he has to endure, all that weakness, all that pain, if it ever comes to me, what I want to be able to say in that moment is, listen, you're not taking anything from me. I laid this thing down every day of my life. So yeah, take it right now. But I let it go a long time ago. I'm with Paul when he says in 1 Corinthians 15 that I die daily. And I'm with Jesus when he says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, that I pick up my cross daily for, for, for this may be a one-time exercise for you coming and putting this pain on me. But this is an everyday thing for me because I lay down my will and I lay down my way and I die to myself every morning for the cause of Jesus Christ. That's how we can carry the death of Jesus tomorrow. It's just lay down your life. Lay down your will and your way. And then he says back in chapter 4, 
verse 11. For we who live are always given over to death because of Jesus, so that Jesus' life may also be revealed in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. So he's saying it's not death for death's sake. It's not just I'm going to carry the death of Jesus around because, well, that just seems like the right thing to do. He says, no, I carry the death of Jesus around. I carry the suffering of Jesus around in my suffering so that life can be found in you. Death is circling around me so that life has a straight path to you. See, the idea is that you and I, we would take our weakness and our pain and our suffering and that people would be able to see through it. Somehow see the suffering and the pain of Jesus just like they did with Paul. And he says in verse 16, Therefore we do not give up, even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. Now, if you're over 30, I don't have to talk you into your outer person being destroyed. Over Christmas, we were at my parents' house, and I've told you before, but my mom is an organized person, to say the least. And so there's a whole picture album dedicated to me in high school, which is weird to say out loud, but there is. And Annabeth had gotten into it. And she, like, A, she didn't even recognize me with hair. And uh, I was a little bit skinnier back then, just a little bit, not much, just a little bit. And uh, so I had been looking at those pictures with Annabeth. And then a couple days later, somebody took a picture. And I wasn't in the picture, but I was, like, in the background of the picture. You know what I'm talking about? You ever see that happen to you? And now with the Internet, like, somebody put it on the Internet for Jesus and everybody to see. and I'm, so I'm looking at myself, not in the picture, but in the background of the picture, and I'm to the side, you know, like it's a side view. And I'm like, is that what I look like from the side? Like, what's, what's the matter with me, you know? Gosh, when did that happen to me? Like, I think I have a hunchback, you know? Like, stand up, stand up straight. No offense to anybody. Um, I'm there with you. I'm with you, apparently. In that picture, I was, I was hunched over. And uh, gosh, I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to you guys that you got to, from the side, sit up front. Right here is like the seat, you know, it's like the seat. It's bad. So then I read that verse this week. I'm like, I get it, man. I get that. The outer person is wasting away. But the inner person is thriving. You've seen that before. You've seen somebody who, who just their situation and their circumstances is just beyond what you would be able to bear. Their marriage is just awful. Their job is terrible. Their health is terrible. They are totally impoverished. You've seen people like that. That's on the outward, there's just nothing good happening. But these people, They got this gear with Jesus that I just don't have. They got this place in prayer that I just can't muster up myself. Even in the midst of incredible, incredible poverty, they just got this joy welling up out of them that I just don't have. 
because they're with Paul. They're saying, hey, even if on the outside everything is being stripped away, even if on the outside everything is being totally destroyed and laid to waste, you can't stop what's happening on the inside because daily, not just one time, but daily, I'm being renewed, I'm being made alive, I'm being made whole. And so, yeah, on the outward, it's totally going to the pit, but on the inside, I'm soaring. On the inside, I'm free. On the outside, I'm totally bound up and I'm restricted. I'm in pain and I'm hurting. I'm lonely and I'm depressed. That's on the outside. But on the inside, I am alive in Christ. On the inside, I got a place of intimacy and revelation and knowledge and experience with Jesus that you just don't have. So you may be jealous. I may be jealous for your outside, but I would not trade what's going on on the inside. Listen, when we leave here today, all that is going to be promoted to us is the outside. And what will be put up on a pedestal for us to long and lust for will be people who can have what they want, be what they want, and do what they want whenever they want. I mean, isn't that the ultimate dream? To just be able to say, man, you know what? I, 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 I want to like go somewhere this week. I, I want to go on vacation. I want to go to the mountains. Well, how are we going to pay for it? Well, see that big old pile of cash right over there? I'm just going to use some of that. Wouldn't that be amazing? Or I, I, I think I want to own this. And I got the means to pay for it. I, I think I want to be this kind of person. I got every door open to us. What will be presented to us to be jealous for will be someone who has what they want when they want it the way they want it. What the scripture is telling us today is that's just temporary. That even if you can secure that for yourself, that's just a moment. That's just a vapor of that kind of life. And so let's not waste our lives trying to grab on to something and secure for ourselves something that lasts as long as a vapor. Because what Paul says is that's temporary. But there is an unseen this week. There is an unseen out there for all of us. And the unseen doesn't yell to us. The unseen doesn't just show up on our front porch every morning. You got to know that the unseen is there and you got to have eyes to see it, but the unseen is there. And in the unseen, it's the way of Jesus. And the unseen is the sacrifice of Jesus. And the unseen is the joy of Jesus. And the unseen is the eternal reward of Jesus, which Paul says is so incomparable that he takes that long list of imprisonments and being out in the middle of the ocean for a night and a day. He takes that long list and he says, that was nothing but light momentary affliction compared to the incomparable glory that awaits us. But that's unseen. And you won't see that this week unless you go and look for it. 
Because the way of the world is power, the way of the world is glory, the way of the world is strength. But the way of the kingdom is weakness. Because when you and I are weak, Jesus steps into the equation. That's when he gets into the mix. But he will let you and I stand in the corner all day and just proclaim our strength. God put a dream in your heart this year. You got something you want to get done. Don't try to wrestle it to the ground. Just stop and say, I'm a jar of clay, common and weak. Jesus, can you step in to my weakness? Because when your strength and my strength get together, it's all your strength. And then we can get some things done. Jesus, we say as a church family that we want to accomplish a lot of things this year. But we don't want to stand in the corner and publicly proclaim how strong we are. we embrace weakness today and ask that you would step in that you would be our strength Father I pray that you would just stir in up, up in us that we would leverage all of our weakness and all of our pain and all of our suffering today so that life can appear to someone else Do you have life inside of you? Just want you to ask yourself that question in a moment of reflection. Is the life of Jesus in you? Because unless the life of Jesus is in you, there is no eternal life according to the word of God. Unless the life of Jesus is in you, there is no peace with God. Unless the life of Jesus is in you, there is only eternal pain and misery. So is the life of Jesus in you. And if today, in a moment of honesty, you would admit, no, I don't think the life of Jesus is in me. All you have to do is to ask for it. Jesus has already done everything that you that needs to be done for you to have eternal life. He was sent by God. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross innocent man as our substitute he was raised from the dead he had made many appearances he ascended up into heaven and one day he will return if you believe in him his life comes to you so just in case any of you were in a position like I was a few years ago lacking words to say If you want the life of Jesus in you, then you just pray this with me. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you are the way and I embrace your way. I believe you are the life and I embrace your life. And I believe you are the truth and I embrace your truth. Forgive me of my sin I receive 
your forgiveness now. And I commit myself to you. In Jesus' name.